0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Today's guest, who has a passion about writing, has written about a man with passion as well, but also much more, determination, grit, discipline, and a sense of right and wrong. Joshua M. Green is author of Unstoppable, Siggy B. Wilsig's amazing journey from Auschwitz survivor and penniless immigrant to Wall Street legend. The book is published by Insight Editions, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Joshua Green, and that's a an e at the end of the green, go to joshuamgreen.info, and you can follow him on Amazon, Goodreads, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Aaron. There were many remarkable people who survived the Holocaust, many stories. Why did you decide to focus your attention on Ziggy Wilzig, and how did you find out about him?
1: Okay, there's there's a general answer and a very specific answer. The general answer is that we're rapidly approaching a time when the Holocaust will become yet one more artifact of ancient history, like the French Revolution or the the Greek and Roman empires or something. And and, uh, the urgency of understanding the Holocaust, the relevance of the Holocaust to our lives and the world we know today, uh, it will be at risk at loss. And I don't think there's anything more powerful for preserving and perpetuating Holocaust memory than the stories of the men and women and children who were eyewitnesses to that dark time. The The more specific answer to your question is that in Siggy Wilsig, I found someone uh, quite unique who, while having gone through the horrors and the starvation and the torture and the beatings that we identify with the Holocaust period, somehow found what one man called the moxie, one of the hundred people I interviewed who knew him, to apply his survival skills in business. He arrived here at age 21 in 1947 with no money, no education since schools for Jews were closed by the mid-30s. And yet, by the time he passed away from cancer in 2003, he had left behind him an oil and banking empire with more than $4 billion in assets, and it had become one of the most powerful voices for Holocaust education and remembrance uh, in the world. And I thought that was a story worth telling.
0: How did you first become aware of Ziggy Wilson?
1: <laughs> Eight years ago, the phone rang. And uh, it was, I didn't know then, but it was Mr. Wils- the late Mr. Wilsick's son, his eldest child of three, Ivan Wilsick, who had read some of my other Holocaust books, Justice at Dachau, Witness Voices from the Holocaust, and said, you're the man, you're the one, you're going to write my father's story. And I tried to dissuade him. I said, I'm really done with this very dark period. But Ivan was a very convincing and, and, and persistent and had me read transcripts of his late father's testimony for the Shoah Foundation and I was hooked. That was eight years ago. I'm very proud to say the book is on several bestseller lists currently and there's talk about a, a mini series based on Siggy's life. So it it's it's come out well, let's put it that way. <laughs>
0: And here was a remarkable man who was able to survive horrific conditions in Auschwitz. What made him different than others?
1: Well, it's hard to say that any survivor is better or more unique than any other. And and Siggy himself would be the first one to demure and and say that he is not some superhuman person who managed to do what none of the other millions of Hitler's victims failed to do. Survivors will tell you that staying alive was a matter of luck and chance. It wasn't cunning or intelligence or great education. But he did have cunning instincts. He he had an intuition for what to say, when to say it, how to present himself. He had grown up as a child in a very anti-Semitic village of West Prussia called Kryanka, where he had to grow up very fast and he took those adult skills even as a young man he was only 16 when when he was incarcerated in auschwitz and listened listened very carefully whenever he heard nazi guards talking about how they needed bricklayers he would take a real risk a da- very dangerous risk walk up to them and speak unbidden and say i understand you need bricklayers i've had three years as a master bricklayer he had never had three years as a master or anything, but he was a good bluffer, and they put him to work laying bricks, and he would study what the other bricklayers were doing and pick it up very quickly. Same was true when he wanted to get indoors. He was getting very sick. He contracted pneumonia. And he knew he was going to die if he couldn't get inside. So when he heard they needed a doctor's assistant, he stepped right up. <laughs> <laughs> I've had five years as a doctor's assistant back home, and got himself a job indoors. So he he was a good liar, and <laughs> and later in life, won a lot of people over to become customers of his banks by telling the most outrageous tall tales. You could ever imagine. I mean, part of the thing that makes Unstoppable an interesting book, if I may say so myself, is that his was hysterically funny. You know, <laughs> you know, he'd walk a woman, he'd see, he was the president, CEO, and chairman of the board of a bank that he took over without any training in banking, turned it into the, one of the largest commercial banks in the state of New Jersey. If you saw a woman standing in the lobby, he'd walk over and he'd start Primping her hair with his fingers, like, <laughs> it was a, you know, like Vidal Sassoon or somebody, and he'd say, "Madam, you know, you're very beautiful, but I can make you more beautiful." <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yes, I have a chain of beauty. Oh, can I get an appointment? And he'd look at her with indignation and say, "What? Oh, certainly not. We're booked up for the next three years." And he'd walk away. So <laughs> naturally, this woman was so intrigued by this, you know, bank. President, beauty,
0: yeah, that slash beauty expert. Yeah. <laughs> they ended up doing all their business with
1: his bank. <laughs> that's how he built
0: it. Well, <laughs> I think the the other part of that equation you mentioned—he's a good liar. But to do what he did in the camps, and then later on, as you mentioned in, in the business world, he also had that technical term called chutzpah Oh
1: yes, that's a very technical word.
0: Yes, yes, it's fascinating. The other part about your book that's fascinating. Well, there's so many parts, but the fact that he achieved success. In two industries, both of which were anti-Semitic, people don't realize this today, but at the time, oil and banking, how did he end up doing that? Was there a formula? Or, again, he just had that drive, and he had chutzpah, and he was a good liar, and he was full of drive?
1: Well, he knew that anti-Semitism was never going to go away, and it wasn't a conscious choice to go into the worst anti Semitic <laughs> businesses in post-to-war America. You know, oh well no he was already he, he
0: had already been in the worst anti Semitic hellhole at yeah, Auschwitz. That's
1: exactly it. Yeah. He had seen the worst and therefore he was utterly fearless. If he walked into a room of you know powerful, rich, white Anglo Saxon Protestant, you know, oil barons or banking chiefs or whatever, and if he sensed that anti Semitic vibe in the air he had a little device. He'd take off his jacket, roll up his sleeve, point to the prisoner number tattooed on his arm when he entered Auschwitz, and wag, wag a finger in their faces and say, the last person who tried to intimidate me was Hitler. He didn't succeed, and neither are you. And he'd put on his jacket, walk out of the room, take over their company, and beat them at their own game. And he was <laughs> expert <laughs>
0: It's amazing story what's your biggest takeaway from researching and writing a book both from the point of view of the average reader but also from you personally what was your biggest takeaway
1: well for the average reader I'd say Siggy's message is never give in to despair Um, we humans are very resilient creatures and if you just raise your eyes up from the ground level and recognize what a blessing life is that the universe will come to your aid and will show you solutions to things that you'd never even imagined possible. See, he was a very religious man. He never tried to convert anybody, you know, to his point of view, but he was very forceful about, uh, never giving in to bullies, never acquiescing to tyranny or, I mean, this was Forbes magazine did a, a profile on him and they ended the, the profile by saying, this man who sued the federal reserve when the federal reserve tried to strip him of his businesses. What's the fed when you've stared down the Gestapo? I think that's a fair assessment of Siggy. So that would have been, I think his message for, for you listeners for myself personally. It's, um, I, I, I need to be careful about my own prejudices. I think we all carry around prejudices and, and, um, slanted perspectives and you know i i see in my family i'm considered the spiritual one right i practice yoga i'm vegan you know i write books about you know the bhagavad-gita from india and all like that um but i i've had my prejudices you know i've I've had my way of seeing life in, in hitler's camps through a particular lens, which was you might call it the lack of agency. You know, that survivors had no choice. It's what scholar Lawrence Langer calls choiceless choice. In in the concentration camps, there was no good choice. There was either a bad choice or a worse choice. If you stole a piece of bread to stay alive, it meant that you'd kill the person you stole the piece of bread from. So there was no good choices. And I've for the longest time I didn't see how Survivors had any control over their own lives. And I think Siggy's shown me otherwise that, um, even, even someone without any, he was a small guy. He was five foot five, had no education, had no money, you know, no influence, no, you know, fancy address or, or, uh, business sponsors or anything like that. And yet he was able to do so much. I, I like what the late founder of the body shop, Anita Roddick, used to say. She used to say that if you think being one little person is too small to make a difference in the world, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know what I, I like about your what you just said is you've had a lot of experience. You've written a lot. You've studied a lot. As you mentioned, you're considered the spiritual person in the family. But you were swayed to a different position, or at least partly a different position, from writing this book about Ziggy. That's true. That's true. It took a long time. I mean, it didn't It didn't come
1: overnight. This book took seven years to write. And um, I'm, I'm glad that it's being well-received and it's doing so well. And I think in large measure, it's because it's kind of the anti-Holocaust book. Most Holocaust accounts start off with, this is what these people lived like before the Nazi era. Here's what they went through. They were sent to ghettos, and the noose was tightening, and then they were shipped to the camps. And they went through such horrors, and they were liberated, and they settled in America or in Israel. And now they have a new family, and they lived happily. Ever. That's the usual trajectory. So his story is a bit different. He never escaped. He once said, I'm trying to get away from the past, but it's not possible. I still am in Auschwitz. I live there every day. And, and, uh, what I found was that he was able, and this is very yogic, by the way. This is a very yogic principle. He was able to manage those nightmares. He had nightmares every night. The, the yogic principle is yoga's citta vritti The Sanskrit word niroda means managing. There are these vacillations in the mind and in the heart, the things that trouble us. You may not be able to escape them. You know, I lost my mom seven months ago. I'll never get over that. But you can manage those things. There's a way so that they don't have to define you or control you. And that's what I found in Siggy, who was someone who managed his nightmares.
0: Do you think he learned to manage his nightmares instinctively or by Studying others, so you mentioned yoga, for example, and you and you obviously you've studied other spiritual avenues. But with Ziggy, particularly, did he come to that in an instinctual way? Well, that's a really good question. I, it, you know,
1: someone could say, would this person have achieved as much even if he had not gone through the Holocaust? Was it just his nature? Was there some something about him? maybe the way he grew up or this kind of hard scrabble life thing was personally, would he have always known how to, you know, dominate a conversation, turn something to his advantage or whatever? Well, it's possible. We don't know. You know, we'll never be able to go back in time and make some kind of comparison. But I think it's fair to say, it's reasonable to say that there's evidence of what In psychology is called uh, post-traumatic growth. Now it's a bit controversial. It's not accepted universally, but the notion of post-traumatic growth is that things can happen having come out of the worst of circumstances that may never have occurred otherwise. For example, people coming out of extreme crisis discover a new appreciation for their life. They may discover that they had skills or intuitions, instincts that came to their aid that they never knew they had previously. They may find uh, a reason to go on, uh, a new passion in life, things that, that are kind of born from darkness and illuminate the path for them moving forward. So, I think there, there's some of that, that we can find in Siggy, that he was someone who loved life. He, he, he was outrageous in his love for life. He would get up in the middle of dinner with his family in a restaurant, a public restaurant, and start singing and dancing in the middle of the restaurant with unbidden, you know, just like stand up and start, you know, to dream the impossible dream. And and people would be nudging his kids, saying, "Is he the only? Does he own the restaurant?" They say, "No, he just you know." They were a little embarrassed about it at first, but after a while, they got used to it, and you know, they were proud to have a father who loved life despite everything he had gone through. He
0: he clearly loved life and lived life as an example of what you the example you just gave, which not too many people would stand up in the middle of a restaurant and start singing, but. He did. And, and of course, he still had that chutzpah going. So that, that's probably why he was able to do it as well.
1: Look, he wasn't the, the easiest of people to get along with, you know, and I don't know what it was like growing up with him as a father. I think that must have had some very rough moments. So I don't want to, you know, paint too idealistic a portrait. I mean, you don't come out of two years in Auschwitz and two death marches and, and torture and starvation unblemished.
0: No, nobody would. But he was able to absorb that past, and as you said, come out of it at the other end, almost like coming out of the end of the tunnel, that post-traumatic growth, and go on to live and enjoy life. Yeah. yeah, That's um, that's fascinating. Yeah. He, he found
1: his motive in Holocaust education. He wanted everyone to know what had happened, and he dedicated the rest of his life. There, there wasn't a day that went by when he wasn't teaching and preaching about the Holocaust, especially to young people. But, you know, he would say, for example, he was the first person to lecture before the cadets and officers at West Point. And he said, one day one of you may become president, and you have to know what happened so that you can stop it from ever happening again. And he would show photographs of, you know, what was discovered when the Allies liberated the camps and, and so on. He would tell students, don't think that this doesn't concern you just because you may not be Jewish. Don't say, well, I'm you know, Hispanic or I'm uh, African-American or I'm Christian or I'm Muslim or whatever. That Don't think that this doesn't apply to you. Today, they come for the Jews. Tomorrow, for some other uh, underrepresented group or some immigrant group. This is a story for everyone. And it was very powerful when he talked about it.
0: I bet. Because remembering the Holocaust was a big commitment in his life, clearly on a daily basis, as you mentioned, did it affect his Jewish faith either in a positive or negative way because he was religious? But did it affect him having gone through those experiences either way, positively or negatively? Because many Holocaust survivors question their religion based on just the pure evil that went on. And how how did God allow this to happen?
1: Okay, that, that, that's not a question, that's a PhD
0: thesis.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'll do my best to give you, Thank you, know, you. A, a, a concise response. Yes, please. He <laughs> never lost his faith. Uh, some people, many people, lost their faith in God when they went into the camps and they say, how could there be a creator, uh, a benign and, and compassionate supreme being who would allow such horrors? take place, and I won't go into the horrors, but they're beyond imagining what happened in the camp. Siggy would say, you know, God, yes, God created snakes and spiders and horrible things, but he also created butterflies and flowers, and uh, he tells this one story after the liberation of Mauthausen, where he was set free by the American soldiers. He volunteered to work for the U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, hunting down former Nazis. And he was successful at that. His, his job, remember he's still very young. He's like 20 years old. His job took him on his first plane ride. And it was a dark, cloudy, rainy day. And he describes that the plane took off and it broke through the cloud bank. And on the other side of the cloud there was a bright sunshiny day and the sky was blue and Visited, and he said in that moment my faith was reaffirmed he said god was speaking to me the almighty was speaking to me at that moment and he was saying i'm still here i never went away sometimes a cloud like hitler comes between us but i never abandon you i am always here that was ziggy's faith
0: what was the biggest surprise you found out about ziggy when you, because you 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 mentioned earlier that you spent about seven years putting this book together and writing it, obviously there was a certain amount of time for the research, a certain amount of time for the writing, probably some of it going back and forth at the same time. But in all of that, was there one surprise that you found out that you didn't expect to find out?
1: Well, I mean, I think the most obvious answer is the sense of humor, which is utterly wicked. I mean, you know, Ivan. His son Ivan and I would be reviewing a chapter or a story in the boat and he's he's on his phone, I'm on my phone. We're literally putting ourselves into hysterics of, you know, weeping with laughter over things his father did. So that, that was an upside. But in terms of the biggest surprise, I guess the biggest surprise for me was that this powerhouse, this man who could create billions of dollars in assets and who had no time for anything, never a moment for anything, always had time for children, always had time to reach out to help someone in distress or in need. Um, If he was walking through one of his hundred bank branches, for example, and if he saw a teller at one of the windows sniffling or coughing, He would go over and say, are you okay? What's the matter? And uh, he would send her in, in his car with his chauffeur to his personal doctor, you know, or if he heard that someone's son, this is a real story. Someone's son was suicidal. He would stop his work. He'd go to the person's house and sit down with the young man and tell me what's, what's wrong? How come you feel this way? Uh, he, he could be strict as a thunderbolt and soft as a rose. And I guess it's those moments of softness of poetry. Uh, he was a very eloquent speaker. It's, it's finding beneath the horror, stripping away the layers of, of, of human humiliation and, and, and misery and finding this, um, elegant human being beneath all of that.
0: Earlier, I asked you about what you took away from the book, and you talked about your change in perspective, but a larger question, and I promise it's not a PhD question, and that is, <laughs> did you come away from writing the book a changed person? Oh, well,
1: you ask a lot on a first date, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I suppose in some ways I'm not, uh, I'm not as adverse as I was before writing this book to writing again about the Holocaust period. I thought I was done with it. I really didn't want to do it anymore. It's so dark. So I guess I'm changed on, on that level. Um, I'm feeling older. Gosh, did I really just say that? Yeah. You
0: did. You did.
1: I'm, I'm feeling older you know i'm i'm well i turned 71 last month okay so i am old <laughs> but you know um i'm feeling i'm feeling the weight of the world more um i don't understand how it's possible for humans to be so cruel toward one another i don't even understand how democrats and republicans can be so freaking cruel to one another i i grew up in new york okay mhm talking to someone who understands what i'm talking about here yes and, and you know when i was a kid i'm, I'm from a long western center you know my parents were, met in a communist block meeting for heaven's sake <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a vegan yoga practicing mantra chanting jewish intellectual from downtown new york i'm but i had republican friends and their parents and my mom We'd get together, we'd have picnics, we'd hang out, go to each other's homes, and there would be difference of opinion, but we could talk about it. You know, it was civilized. I don't understand where all of this bitterness and anger and hostility is coming from and why it's so, why it's become so extreme. And, and um, I'm changed, I'm changed in that way. After going through Siggy's story and seeing how hard he tried to get people to be reasonable with each other and how we're not living up to that, how we're really failing as a species, um, I feel the weight of that more than I have before.
0: It seems there's no tolerance on either side, and that's the problem. You mentioned earlier, and we'll end it on this note, you mentioned in the beginning that. At some point, the Holocaust will become a distant memory, despite the efforts of people like Spielberg and you and so many others. Are you more optimistic that the story will still be told after writing the book on Ziggy Wilsey?
1: Well, I I am optimistic that the story will be told, not necessarily because of anything I've done. I mean, you're being very generous vaulting me up into the category with Steven Spielberg. Thank you very much. Yes, I'll come back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. I'd like to have you come <laughs> back. <laughs> uh,
1: but, I, I, you know, the Holocaust is the single most studied, documented, analyzed, and taught period in human history. And the interest is growing. I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by how many young people are entering the field. And if you go to the places of the atrocities, the, the memorial grounds at Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or Dachau or wherever, those sites are maintained usually by young Germans, not by Jews, by non-Jewish second or third generation Germans, meaning maybe the grandchildren of people who might have been involved in Germany during the war. That's encouraging. There's, there's a very healthy curiosity to look at this and say, what happened? Why did it happen? What do we need to know from this? So that part, that's very encouraging. That that part is very encouraging. So far as the movies, I mean, sure, Hollywood doesn't help. I mean, <laughs> Hollywood always gets it wrong. But even there, you know, uh, Life is Beautiful, Jacob's a Liar, or Inglorious Bastards, or whatever film you want to point to, it at least, keeps the subject of the Holocaust in the public discourse, and then people can learn the truth about it when they go a
0: little deeper. That's a great way to end it. My guest has been Joshua M. Green. He's author of Unstoppable Ziggy B. Wilzig's Astonishing Journey from Auschwitz Survivor and penniless Immigrant to Wall Street Legend. The book is published by Insight Editions and available on Amazon Barnes and Noble and all the usual places. For everything about Joshua Green, go to Joshua M. Green, and that's an e at the end of Green. Joshua M. Green.info, and you can follow him on Amazon, Goodreads, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And Joshua, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Ira. Thank you so much. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.